The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Ooh, shiny. I have never yelled at the TV as loudly as I did tonight watching the latest episode of Hawkeye. Oh, when um do I can I say spoilers? I don't I don't know if we should I don't I, I don't think There's we should say There's a reveal. Say it. It's episode 4, correct? It was episode, episode only four. episode 4. Something happens. Something um, happens in 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 the third act. I'm sitting alone. <laughs> a reveal. The basement home theater watching on the big screen and I just yelled what at the top of my lungs <laughs> yeah i have like i have i have several follow up questions um none of which i will ask uh, right now right here just in case you know i feel like i don't know when this episode will come out but also i feel like maybe we don't have that much faith in the hawkeye series and maybe people won't watch it right away <laughs> And so I want to give them the space to like come to it on their own terms and I won't give any spoilers, but yeah, there's yeah. Some, something going gonna, on. I'm going to try to get this out next week sometime, but yeah, so there'll still be an episode or two depending on how quickly I get it out there and posted. And so maybe someone has been waiting to binge the whole thing and we wouldn't want to blow this for them, but wowage. Yeah, a little surprised. It was in a different direction than I would have guessed, and I like that. Yeah, they're doing a very good job. I, of course, I've always loved the Matt Fraction Hawkeye comics. Yes. I said, I texted a friend of mine earlier today, and I was like, can you imagine if if I went back in time and told myself circa, like, ninth grade that I would watch <laughs> both a Loki TV show and then a Matt Fraction's Hawkeye TV show in the same year? Bro. And bro, bro, bro. Um, I just I would have become too powerful. <laughs> I would have ascended in a way that 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 wasn't in my that isn't in my in my destiny. So it had to wait. <laughs> but um, oh my God, they're wow. uh, yeah, that they're was something. It. That was something. I just want to take a brief moment since it has been so long since our previous episode to just say, so, you know, coronavirus, I had it. It's real. Uh, did you know that, did you know that coronavirus was real? It's real. It's, it's, it's like a real thing that you can catch. It's crazy. But, uh, you know, fully vaxxed, mild symptoms, but uh, losing your sense of taste mm -hmm. and then just having to chew on substances in your mouth <laughs> was so bizarre no matter that's if um that's what it's like when i try to eat lunch on my adhd medication <laughs> <laughs> i'm just like yeah obviously not the same um just not quite the same i found myself concentrating on texture differences mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so if i was eating like say a quesadilla mm -hmm. then i'd be th i'd be like oh the chips are nice and crunchy and the guacamole is so nice and smooth and that contrast between the crunchy and the smooth and the or the crunchy and the melted cheese 
it's like I could get the contrast and a little bit of saltiness, and that that was it. Or then sometimes, or and 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 a little bit of heat off the salsa, mm-hmm. but no flavor to the salsa, just the heat. So bizarre that things wildly divergent things would taste the same. That is with no taste. <laughs> I do. Um. I I do think it's 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 different to obviously to completely have have lost your sense of taste. But I have been. I I will take a bite of my lunch and then just like I'm. I then I just spit it back out. <laughs> I I've never really. And once I've been like, eh, it's not worth it. I'm not doing it. Ah, uh, but it's, yeah, you I, you know I didn't lose my appetite. Mm-hmm. But it was just going through the motions. But what I did was I just kept making my same, you know, I'm a creature of habit. So I like have the same breakfast every morning for the last, you know, four years almost. But I would just go through the motions and do it anyway. I'd pull my bar of cereal. I would slice my bananas on top, even though all I could distinguish between the cereal and the bananas was like, ooh, smooth bananas, crunchy cereal. (laughs) And then I would have my toast with peanut butter and jelly even though I couldn't taste the peanut butter or the jelly. But I just kept going through it until I started to get hints of taste here and there. <laughs> Can I, when, when, when you were sick, I was doing some, some, some grocery drop-offs, right? And yeah. I would get these very specific grocery lists. And this, I think I'm used to. I'm used to, it's like small bananas. And I'm like, I know, I've learned, it's, I, I know that it's small bananas. Um, because of my banana, it doesn't all fit comfortably on top of a bowl of cereal. Exactly. And, and tell the people cause they need to know. Yeah. But, um, uh, my, I had a friend who would often, who we often go on errands together and on the weekends and she would just be like, what is the deal with this grocery <laughs> list? And I was like, I just, I don't ask the questions that's above my pay grade. I simply get the get the produce and then get roasted by the size of the produce. Um, oh, because the leeks. I bought some I bought some leeks that were that the that, that were that, they couldn't fit in the car. Yeah, you they barely a, fit in my Prius. A trailer. You needed like a boat trailer to get those leeks. The way I was standing in Target looking at those leeks and being like, I'm gonna hear about the size of these leeks later, but. Mom said two leaks, and I'm going to buy two leaks, even if those two leaks have the back end of my Prius touching the pavement. Yeah, and they they were like six regular leaks worth in in just two leaks because they were so big. Yeah, and you know and you know you know what else they are is um just really good podcast material. <laughs> <laughs> Pearson specific produce size humor but that's what they come here for and speaking of the podcast should we should we get started maybe (laughs) welcome to generations geek a more or less family celebration of all that is geeky i'm science fiction writer and editor scott pearson and along with my daughter ella hello we are two generations of geek this is episode 64 
four featuring Jim Johnson, lifelong Star Trek fan, three-time Star Trek Strange New Worlds winner, and project manager of the Star Trek Adventures role-playing game. Whatever shall we talk about? Maybe some Star Trek. <laughs> now, on with the show. Jim Johnson, welcome to Generations Geek. Hello, thanks for having me on on the uh, show. Always a pleasure, Scott. Oh, we've been trying to have you on for so long, and we've just been, uh, I don't know what we've been. Well, I was, co- I had COVID, and mm-hmm. we were just, uh, we were just worn out. Yeah. Like, it's easy to just feel worn out all the time these days. Sure. sure. Well, you know, life life happens, right? I mean, especially yeah. when you're older. Ella, this is something that you'll have to appreciate. I mean, you probably already know, right? But, like, <laughs> like I, I remember back in the day when we had all the time in the world to play games and go to school and just do whatever, and there was, like, no shortage of time. But then all of a sudden you start getting older and you start having kids and things happen. It's like, oh, we can never get the group back together again or we can never get the band back together. And there's always there's always something. And the more people you add to the mix, the harder it gets. Right. The more schedules you have to try to juggle. Uh, it just gets challenging. But, uh, you know, it, we stuck with it and we persevered. And here we are. Right. Yeah. So now we're able to jump right <laughs> we into it. It and, uh, and have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's dive into the geekery then. Yeah. What was your gateway to the geek world? What got you started? You know, not to sound like a homer, but I think it had to be Star Trek. I think uh, <laughs> I think when I was uh, when I was a kid, we lived on uh, we lived in New York, New York City, and uh, I remember having a little three inch black and white portable television with a with a cheap aerial on it, right, and using the aerial <laughs> like to try to turn it the right direction to pick up a signal. And uh, watching really grainy black and white reruns of Star Trek on that. And then me and my friends would go out to the playground and pretend we were on a landing party, right? Like Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And we'd just be running around shooting, uh, no doubt, you know, imaginary Klingons or something. Or uh, or getting killed by uh, um, all the things that were killed in the red shirts. Um, So I think I have to think it was probably Star Trek on on TV. Yeah. Uh, Although I think um, I also remember watching a lot of uh, cartoons, of course as a kid and i remember watching a lot of um g-force i think it was like a one of those japanimation um Ah. uh, you know it's science fiction and it was a team and there was like uh mark jason kiop tiny and princess were the characters and they were all (laughs) different vehicles and all the vehicles combined together into a ship and i thought that was like the coolest thing like they never had a toy as far as i can remember where you could like actually do it all but Mm -hmm. uh um, I th- so I think it was a combination of, of cartoons, but especially Star Trek. And then, of course, as I got older, you know, other things came in and, and books and everything. But no, I think and, Star Trek was probably the gateway. Yeah. And how old were you at that time? Uh, seven or eight. OK. I mean, this is, yeah. this is going back, right? I mean, this is the yeah. mid 70s. Uh, you know, the original Star Trek had already done its uh, done its course and the animated series came and went. And so it was all reruns at that point. Yeah, in fact, now that, now that I think about it, I think it was Star Trek, and then like right on top of it, because this had this had to have been the mid to late 70s. Of course, 77 Star Star Wars came out, and uh, my family we didn't actually see Star Wars until the spring of 78. Because if I remember right, that the movie was in the theaters for like forever, which yeah. was unheard of back then. Like normally, a movie wouldn't be in the movie theaters for a year, but Star Wars was in the theaters forever, and I Change think we everything. went to see it. I think we went to see it over Easter in uh in 78 in in one of the new york movie theaters and uh and so like you know having watched star trek i was like that's one thing 
But then as a, you know, an, an impressionable eight-year-old, I was like, whoa, Star Wars, this was bigger than life, right? That was my whole world. And, uh, you know, I definitely grew up in the uh, in the Star Wars generation because that that's, I mean, that was everything from 77 to, you know, 83, right? It was all about Star Wars and then Empire Strikes Back and then Return of the Jedi. And that was like, it, we, you know, we didn't have the internet back then, right? So to be able to talk about it, all you really had was your local friends to talk to with. Or to go to, I mean, if there was even a local convention to go to, you go to that. And we had Starlog Magazine, right? We had Starlog yeah. and uh, um, what was the horror version of Fangoria? Star- Fangoria, yeah. So we had we had those, <laughs> and it was it was just a different world, man. But yeah, uh, I remember my group, you know, my friends and stuff in school. We were all about Star Trek and Star Wars. And so they, I didn't know this. They they played Star Wars like in theaters for like a full year after it premiered. It was such a gargantuan hit out of beyond what any movie had ever done that, yeah, it played forever. And then it was only a year or two later that it came back to the theaters, you know, and it came back to the theaters a number of times over like the first five years. Uh, well, I think they would often re-release it before the next movie came out. Mm-hmm. And and that also had just never really been done like that before. And so, yeah, I saw it in the theater, you know, probably a dozen times. I mean, that's nothing. There's people that saw it hundreds and hundreds of times. But I would go see it, you know, two or three times every time it hit the big screens again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I remember right, I mean, it's been such a long time since I've researched it. But I, I want to say that there, it was in the theaters for so long and they had to make so many copies of it that I think at one point there were several different edits of it out there in the theaters. Because I think people were saying, you know, I saw Star Wars and there was this scene in it. But someone else would say, well, I don't remember it being quite that way. And then I think later they did, re- you know, the researchers and the fans got into it. And it was like they figured out that there was like slightly different cuts of the movie out there in the in the world because they needed so many prints of it. Right. But uh, that, I just don't remember the details. But I feel like there is some certain some alternate scenes or alternate cuts of certain scenes that made their way out during just the rush of that of that first couple of years of just getting trying to get as many prints out as possible to uh get into the theaters but it was just a crazy crazy time man <laughs> that's so wild i can't believe that i didn't like i didn't know that at all that they ran it for so long and the home video market was just just starting but at that time there there wasn't necessarily going to be that big of a revenue stream once a movie left the theater mm-hmm uh, because the the uh, VHS scene was was uh, still pretty much in its infancy, so when people just kept packing in the theaters, they just kept playing it. Yeah, yeah, boy, that, gosh, that that takes me back to the Scott. Were you were you involved in like the VHS Betamax wars? Like, which was the better format, VHS or Betamax? And like, <laughs> yeah. your, some of your friends had VHS and some of your friends had Betamax, and it was like, oh, I don't. I don't remember if anyone had Betamax (laughs) when I was growing up. I remember us all having VHS. Uh It wasn't at that point where now we're always buying new things. It's like you buy the CD, you buy the remastered CD, you buy the, you know, the, the DVD, the director's cut DVD, the, the Blu-ray, the, you know, it's like we're used now to having technology change and you keep upgrading your uh, collection, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't done as much back then. Yeah, and now we're into the now we're into the what the the four what was it the the four X UHD 
ultra <laughs> HD. I mean, it's just like, wait, no, I've I bought this thing. I mean, especially with, you know, we're talking about Star Wars, right? Like, how many versions of Star Wars do we have? Like, I, I know I've got it on VHS. I know I've got it on Letterbox VHS in the slipcase. And then it, <laughs> yep. then it came out on DVD, and I've got it on DVD. And then they did the the stupid special editions, right? So then you got the special edition versions. And then they got the Blu-rays, and then they did another Blu-ray. I think I think I stopped somewhere around that last set of Blu-rays, and I was like, I'm just not going to buy this anymore. You've gotten my money like ten times over, so <laughs> I'm done. Of course, now now of course I've got you know Disney Plus, and they're all on Disney Plus too. So it's like, oh, now I don't even need the physical copies anymore. Although it's still nice to have them because sometimes the internet's unreliable, right? And you don't want it to. You have to wait for it to um to buffer, right? And you don't always get yeah. the streaming. So uh, yeah, they, they find a way. They they keep finding creative new ways to to get your money, and it's just like a, a constant. Uh, I, you know, they must be tied into the technology to some extent. Like, oh, you know, it's been five years. Let's push out a new technology so that we can, you know, re-release our entire catalog on on a new form of disc or something. It goes all the way to the top. And yeah, capitalism yeah. for the win, right? <laughs> Yeah, some of my uh, I still own a bunch of Star Trek DVDs of the various films and I realized just within the last uh, year or so that some of my DVDs were so old they weren't enhanced for theatrical aspect ratio televisions. <laughs> yeah. And so they're like this forced letterbox thing, so if you try oh. to play it on your on your 16:9 TV, it's huh? it's it's you know a little picture in the middle of the screen surrounded by black on the outside mm -hmm. so at some point i need to upgrade all my uh, star trek discs but uh, yeah yeah that's so funny because i mean you mentioned disney plus and i've been my friend hasn't seen any any marvel movies this is a tangent but so we've been i've been watching them with her mm -hmm. and when you watch the marvel movies streaming on disney plus the the aspect ratios change like depending on what's happening in the scene oh and it's yeah, like because so some wild of them are the watching it. Yeah, and it'll snap back and forth. It'll take up the whole TV, and then it'll be just like normal 69. Like it's 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 crazy. Yeah, that's because yeah, when they released them to IMAX, they would have for some of the action sequences they would blow up to the full IMAX thing. Oh wow! And so now yeah, they've loaded those up on the streamer, and uh -huh. I find it kind of distracting when it pops back and forth it's like i'd rather just have it stay letterboxed a little bit instead of having it go back and forth but yeah i just watched um shang chi and that was like that oh it took me a while to notice that they did that like for <laughs> it, like it would just be like oh i'd be like oh that was a sharp cut or something and then yeah. after a while i was like they're changing the like ratio Oh, interesting, because we, we just watched uh, Shang-Chi a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't even notice it. I mean, I, I was just caught up in the movie because I was enjoying it so much. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch it again and be a little bit more discerning and see if I can catch the uh, the aspect change. So we talked a bit about your favorite shows and kind of favorite movies, talked about Star Wars. Um, did you have any favorite books uh, when you were younger? I mean, I was a, I was an avid reader even before I could read, right? I, I would love looking at the pictures of all the – like Richard Scarry and uh, – um, uh, Dr. Seuss were the big ones, I think. Um, but I think the first uh, science fiction and fantasy I read, I think my my dad actually gave me a um, a box set of the uh, the Anne McCaffrey Dragon Riders of Pern books, uh, Dragonfly, mm. Dragon Quest, and the White Dragon. And so those were the first ones I read. And I thought they were, I mean, I was what, what like 12 or something, 12 or 13. And I thought they were awesome. Um, not appreciating some of the nuances that are in there that are, <laughs> you know, 
more adult and not not yeah. probably necessarily um you know healthy relationship type stuff um <laughs> but then after right after that um he also gave me a box set of the hobbit and the lord of the rings and i really liked the hobbit i had a real hard time with fellowship of the ring i think i tried to read that like five or six times and every time i got to the council of elrond i just kind of like hit a brick wall and i was like i can't get through this history <laughs> Um, not realizing that stuff picks up. Like once you get through it, then the whole the whole rest of the series just blows right through it because it really gets to a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, so it took me a while to get back into um, um, Lord of the Rings. But uh, man, I tell you, once once I got into Anne McCaffrey, uh, this I mean, again, this was the mid '80s, right? And she had a pretty good library, or you know, a pretty good um, uh, bibliography of stuff by that point. I yeah. read all her stuff. I read everything that she wrote. And uh, thought it was really great, and that was right about the time I started working at a bookstore, and uh, and that was great because uh, then I was um, of course in charge of the science fiction and fantasy section, and so I got as long as I would I would go on break, and as long as I was careful not to break the spine of the books, I could read any book I wanted to on break as long as I was really careful to to yeah. keep it saleable and then shelve it before I went back on on work. And um, I read so much stuff. I think I read everything that Piers Anthony wrote, you know, for, for better or worse, <laughs> uh, he hasn't, he hasn't aged well, but, uh, no. for, for a teenager, it was great stuff. Right. But, uh, not yeah. so, you know, going back it wasn't, it was hard. Uh, but I remember it was like, uh, the Robert Aspirin, the myth series mm-hmm. and, uh, Piers uh, Anthony, Anne McCaffrey, uh, Catherine Kurtz. I was big into Catherine Kurtz. I loved her uh, historical fantasy. Uh, and then of course all the Star Trek novels, right. Cause this was when Star Trek was absolutely in its heyday. And you had, you know, new novels coming out left and right, especially once Next Generation hit the scene. Uh, you had Next Gen novels, original series novels, and then eventually, you know, Deep Space Nine and Voyager. But uh, I remember all the great Keith Birdsong covers that came out with like the headshots of the of the actors, along with some like weird alien or something that didn't look anything like the actors. Right. But the artist was doing the best he could because <laughs> uh, he didn't have the same kind of uh, photo references to rely on. Right. But uh I, I mean, I must have read every Star Trek novel um, back, you know, in the in the 80s, early 90s. Um, hit on some of the greats, you know. I tried to read some of the classics too, but uh, I think I was really more into the more modern stuff, and especially like you know, Star Trek and Sci- Star Trek, Star Wars. Um, I read some of the the Dungeons and Dragons novels, like Dragonlance and uh, Forgotten Realms and stuff, but I, I don't remember loving those quite as much as the science fiction. I think. Mm-hmm. That's a nice segue bringing up Dungeons Dragons because I'm guessing that probably uh, along the same time that you were developing the uh, interests in the reading and the movies and the TV shows, that that's probably around the same time that you started gaming. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, gosh, it was a, in the early '80s when the Redbox D&D came out, and this, I mean, this was like uh, uh, that was. Was it Advanced D&D? AD&D? Gosh, I don't remember now. It must have been like AD&D or the basic box set, whatever the red box was, uh, that had the two little pamphlets in it. Uh, one had the rules and one had other stuff. And then there was those the yellow character sheets, uh, yellow, yellow orangish character sheets. It was like a heavy um, paper paperweight. And so like you could write on it in pencil, but you really couldn't erase it very well. It was like some <laughs> weird paper stock that just did like your eraser would just eat it up and it just would turn it into into trash but uh, yeah that was right about the time that my friends started getting into into rpgs and of course back then i think tsr was really the the main the main uh game company i think there were a few other ones 
uh, but uh, TSR had uh, Dungeons and Dragons and Star Frontiers and Gamma World and Boot Hill and Marvel Superheroes. And I remember my my, my friends and I, we'd play a lot of D&D as the gateway, but then we rapidly got into like Marvel Superheroes and Star mm-hmm. Frontiers just to do something different. Because like, yeah, I mean, we enjoy D&D, and, but there were other there were other games and other genres that we wanted to explore too. And uh, I did a lot of gaming in uh, uh, late high school and then into college. Uh, college was fun because I actually had a gaming group on campus for a little while. I was, I went to a commuter college. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'd go into classes from time to time and if the, if the schedule worked out right, I would go to a, uh, to a game too. And we played all, we tried to play something different every session or, you know, every time we got together. Mm-hmm. So we did like a session of Boot Hill and we did a session of Paranoia. And then we would do like uh, a night of Car Wars, you know, the great Steve Jackson uh, Car Wars game. Uh, and then we did, um, what was it called? Uh, it was a, a really crazy 80s, the Russians are coming game, uh, Price of Freedom. Uh, it was it was like Red Dawn in an RPG format, or <laughs> <laughs> like it, it's America, but we've been invaded by the Russians. And then what do you do? And the only thing I remember about that game is I played a beat cop, and he got caught up in the whole like we have to go survive out in the frontier, and uh, a uh, a Russian hind helicopter came swooping down to attack our little group, and like he had a the my character had a crappy uh, you know old wheel gun like right like a six shot revolver. And just because of the way the system was, if you rolled a, a natural 20 on your dice, that was a critical hit. And then if you rolled another natural 20, it would be like, you know, maximum damage or something. And so I took one shot at the stupid helicopter and like I rolled a 20 and then I rolled a 20. And the, and the game master looked at me and he's like, OK, well, I, I guess you uh, shot through the windshield and killed the pilot. And the whole thing comes crashing down around you. And so you you die because like this helicopter just crashed on you, but you just saved the rest of the group. So congratulations. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that was cinematically awesome. I love it, even though my character died. Um, but that just made me appreciate like like you have to you have to be willing to to work with the rules and not just like feel like you're constrained by what it says or what you can or can't do. Just be willing to go kind of crazy with it. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you know the gaming has been a big part of my life. And uh, it, it just ties right in with all those ma- different paths of uh, science fiction, fantasy, movies, television, books. It, it all ties together. And did you play um, uh, regular board games as well? This stuff that not wasn't as uh, role playing based. Oh sure, yeah. We we, we I mean we would try uh, not so much my family, but my uh, my my friends and I. We would do all kinds of board games or card games. Uh, now of course back in the you know in the 80s there weren't that many card games like Magic or uh, or Pokemon or uh, any of the card games that are out now, there was just, it was usually board games, I think. And I, I mean, gosh, I, I really have to dig dig deep into my memory now to remember, but I, I know there were some board games other than like the traditional Sorry and Monopoly and Shoots uh, yeah. uh, and Ladders and all the classic stuff. Um, I just can't remember the titles off the top of my head. I know there was like one called Dark Tower that had like a plastic electric tower that would like make noise and, and sound effects and stuff. And like if different things happened on the game, it would do different things. Um, yeah, I can't remember, but we did, we did try to break up the role-playing games with other types of games and, and, made, and we, you know, we had the miniature games too, right? We had the, we had car wars and, um, I think we even dabbled in Warhammer a little bit, mm-hmm. but I think the challenge with Warhammer was that it was such a expensive hobby to get into because not only did you have to buy the miniatures, 
but the miniatures came unpainted. So then you had to buy the paints and then you had to spend the time to 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 build them and paint them. And then, um, you know, they're great. They're great. Um, you know, model is to come out with a new rule set every few years. So like then you're like, oh, buy, buy the new rule set and then buy the new miniatures to support the new rule set. And then they change the rules and then you have to buy more. It's just, it's just this never ending cycle. Right. And so I, yeah. I never really got into Warhammer like some of my friends did. But, you know, I had my little starter set of like three space Marines and, uh, it, it, you know, we duke it out. And um, I put at least a primer of uh, blue on them to say, uh, OK, they're painted. I can put them on the table now. <laughs> and they, they, they weren't just the crappy gray you know, base plastic color that everybody else had. Yeah. They they were like, at least make an effort. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll paint them blue. <laughs> I used to work at like this board game place and yeah. we had these tables set up specifically for painting miniatures, like uh -huh. separate from the board game tables. Mm -hmm. And people would come in and be painting miniatures for like, like, they would be there after I left. If I wasn't closing, they would be there after I left. Like, I'd be there my whole shift, and then I would leave, and they would still be painting. It yeah. was crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I love painting miniatures because I just I love the, you know, the focus and the it, it's almost zen in in kind of a way like where you just get to go into it and you put the layers on and you can add the detailing and the dry brushing and the inking and all that stuff. Like I really enjoy that, but like to have to have to do it to play a game is not fun. But to do it and say, like, oh, I've got this really cool miniature and I painted it and I can put it on my shelf and be happy with it. That's different. Right. That's that's more of a meditative art form. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's tricky for me to be like, oh, wait, I want to play this game and I have to buy, you know, five hundred dollars worth of miniatures and then a hundred dollars worth of paint. And then I've got to put the labor in to, to put it all together. And it's like, no, I don't have that kind and, of time. <laughs> am I remembering correctly that you, like myself, bought the uh, big new fancy Car Wars edition? Uh, yeah, I sure did. Because <laughs> how could you not, man? I mean, it was amazing. The, the Kickstarter was incredible. It was amazing. But, you know, I look and I've never been a miniature painter. And then I look at the cars that came with that. And I'm mm. like, there's no way that I could <laughs> paint these. Yeah. Uh, but but I think what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to go through all the cars I got. Mm -hmm. Because at the level I supported, I got I, 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 don't, I don't even know how many cars. And I'm thinking I should be able to find two to four of those that are the simplest ones. <laughs> and I'll try I'll try painting those so that I would have just enough that if I ever actually play the thing, instead of just looking at it and kind of going, ooh, look at that, uh, that I'll have some painted cars instead of just gray cars. But uh, most of them are far above whatever tiny bit of skill I might have. <laughs> Well, let me let me tell you, Scott, I uh, I didn't know what to expect when I got it. And um, I, I went in it. I think I went in at the full the full level with all the add ons. So I think I ended up with like 30 cars in the whole collection. Yeah. Now, I didn't realize that it was going to come in this gigantic box. Right. Plus yeah. an extra box with it's the, like uh, a board cube sized. Yeah, it was a board cube sized <laughs> box. But there was a second box that came with it that was like really long that yeah, had the, the, the poly. The the play, the, yeah, the play mats. And I was like, oh, shit, where am I going to put all this stuff? And uh, but I opened it up and, and Jacob, my six year old, happened to be around when I opened it. And he's like, ooh, I want to you know, what are you doing? You know, I want to be I want to do something with daddy and do something cool. And so we started pulling out all the cars and he was he was so excited about the cars. And he was like, why are they all gray? Was like, well, <laughs> it's because, you know, we have to paint them. And then his eyes lit up and he's like, oh, we get to paint these. 
And so, you know, I took him to the game store and we picked out a bunch of paint, which was kind of cool. And then, you know, I got him some brushes and then we, we sat down together with, uh, you know, we put down newspaper on the table and, um, and, I, and we started painting together. And, you know, I went into my usual Zen mode of like, I'm going to, I picked the two cars that I really liked the details of. And I started painting them, you know, really slow, a little bit at a time. And Jacob was just like, screw that. He just grabbed, <laughs> he was just slapping paint on there. He did a really good job. Of, of like doing it enough to make it look like, you know, a car and what he wanted. He had a vision for each one of them, but he must have painted like 16 of them in the time, <laughs> in the time it took me to do two. And he was, and he was perfectly content with kind of the, kind of the rough and tumble slapdash job in, in my opinion that he did, but like he was super happy with them. And I was like, you know what, maybe I need to rethink this and say, if I've got a big project of, of things to paint, maybe just doing enough <laughs> to be happy is enough. So, yeah, you know, maybe, yeah. You know, maybe if you just want to get them done, just like, you know, make the tires black and the pick a cool color for the for the chassis and, you know, paint the paint the windshields black or something and call it good. But he he had so much fun doing it. And uh, it was it was just a nice moment to see that uh, he was like, oh, I don't need it to be perfect. I just need it to be, you know, cool. And then he needed it to be done. And there's a lot of value in having things done, I think. <laughs> yes. That is a great attitude because I know that I will be obsessive and, and frustrated that it's yeah. not turning out perfectly like I can imagine it in my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I don't know if you want to if you want to segue that into writing. Right. Because because writing, uh, especially if you're writing for, for publication, that's another place where you've got to just be done. Right. There's a certain point if, if you're a writer and you want to be, you know, pursuing writing full time or even if you're just trying to be you know published or whatever there's a certain point where you've got to stop you know screwing with the manuscript and start start sending it out right you have to you yeah. have to call it done at some point because you're never going to make it perfect you're just going to keep you know revising the life out of it you know and uh, I, I mean i was guilty of that when i was starting out as a writer i would i would sit on a manuscript for months and months and keep tweaking it and keep tweaking it and like overthinking it and overanalyzing it and you know to to the point where I had like you know eight or nine trunk novels like like a lot of us do <laughs> that never got done because I I would I would write like 200 or I would write 20,000 words and then I would edit those 20,000 words and then I would edit those 20,000 words and I wouldn't like get to the point where I'm adding to the story I'm just I'm trying to make that first 20,000 words beautiful and perfect and I was like oh I've done that like eight times now and I've got eight you know quarter quarter books that are going nowhere because I couldn't I couldn't finish them uh so that was that that was a lesson that I think a lot of writers I mean some writers don't have to learn that lesson which is you know good for them but I think a lot of us have to learn that I don't know did, did do either of you I mean I know Scott obviously you write Ella, do you write as well I I used to write um yeah. like fan fiction in mm -hmm. more in high school maybe freshman year of college definitely somewhere uh, there's like a large folder of things that I would I would I would rather people do not read. <laughs> but I will say that it would be like I would start a story and then I'd be like, oh, but it would be really cool if I changed this one thing about it. Sure. But then every time I was like, oh, maybe I changed this one thing, I would start a new version of the same story so that I could continue with the story as I had already planned it. And then this other one would have some different plot twist. And then I would have like 10 versions of the same whatever fan fiction story that was incredibly important for me to write when I was 18. Um, uh -huh. And, uh, and, and yeah, all obviously 
unfinished. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you ever write any fan fiction when you were younger? Did that lead into you being an actual author? Uh, yeah, I wrote, I, I, I mean, I wrote, I wrote a lot of fan fiction, but it wasn't where um, I was writing it and then putting it up online. I mean, of course, because I'm a generation behind, right? So, so like when, I mean, in, in the 80s, we didn't have an internet, barely. Like, I mean, I, I had a Commodore 64 and we had this, this um, fledgling, fledgling service called Playnet where you could sign on to Playnet and you could like, there was like chat rooms that could hold 12 people at a time just because of the technology of the time. Um, <laughs> or, or you could play like, um, uh, you could play uh, uh, chess or checkers or reversi or, uh, you know, other little games with people. Um, but you had to use the phone, right? Because you had the 1600 baud modem to dial in that made the, the binging. In the, this was even before AOL. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, so to write to write fan fiction, like I was just mm-hmm. writing stories for myself, right? They were usually either Star Trek stories, or um, they were stories that I, I, I guess I would call fan fiction because it was stories about my role playing characters doing stuff. When because like we weren't playing the game enough for me to get my stories out, so I would just write little short short stories about the characters and the things that they were doing, and that would kind of like help inform my role playing at the table because like I was such a geek i would get into it like this is my character and like th- my character has this whole backstory of, <laughs> of stories fan fiction stories and i bring it to the table and of course no one really cared except the game master once in a while if he bothered to read them which you know i didn't expect him to read them but then of course when i was you know 19 and 20 you you hope that everybody will read your stuff and see your brilliance <laughs> right <laughs> but it never quite works out that way um but one of the one i, I did write a short story <laughs> because <laughs> I was a I was just a stupid kid um, or, you know, uh, this was, you know, early 20s. I wrote a sh- I wrote a fanfic about the new kids on the block and, <laughs> and in in the short story. The new kids, the new kids on the block were at a concert here in, in Virginia at the Patriot Center. And, and I wrote this whole story about how during the concert they got involved in a in a shootout. And they got into a into a Ford Bronco and they were driving down Route 66 in this massive shootout. And in the course of this massive chase and shootout, they all got killed. And I think it was just a way of for me to kind of like work out how much I hated them as a band, <laughs> music group. <laughs> and uh, uh, of course, that'll that will never see the light. Of, I'm, I'm sure it's gone long gone by now. I have no idea where where it is. But I remember like working out my frustrations in that story. And, and feeling much better about it afterwards because you know in my in my in my short story world anyway you know they 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 all passed uh, so <laughs> uh, but you know uh, you know it, to continue your, your question though Ella it, you know eventually I got to the point where I was writing fan fiction professionally right because once the strange new worlds con- contest opened up um, I started submitting to that and um, you know, I, you know, if you want to be cynical, like in a certain from a certain point of view, all media tie in work is fan fiction kind of right, because we're all fans of yeah. the properties and we're writing these stories. And so we're fans writing fiction. And so it's fan fiction, but uh, it's, you know, professional fan fiction. So we can we can feel good about being professional fan fiction writers as opposed to those amateurs who are just posting online for, for other people to enjoy. Right. And uh, I'm saying that very firmly in tongue in cheek. I, I love the fan fiction writers out there. And I I, I mean, back in the day, I read some fan fiction that I really liked. Uh, I just don't have the time to read it anymore because uh, I, I sometimes I barely have time to read, you know, published work, uh, you know, actual actual books. But uh, I do try to. But, yeah, I, I love 
the concept of fan fiction, I just don't write it much anymore. It's such like an interesting line right between like fan fiction and like then suddenly you get published. Like I remember when I was younger and I didn't have like the words to like describe what my dad did. I'd be like, oh, my dad, like he writes like Star Trek stories. And then I would have people be like, like fan fiction. And I was like, <laughs> um, no. <laughs> he's a he's a media tie in writer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which was yeah. not didn't have on the tip of my tongue. But right. yeah, it was it was I was always like looking back on it now. It's very funny because at the time I was like, no, what are you talking about? He write, I'm saying he writes Star Trek. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's dig into that because, well, there's kind of an overlap here because we we debuted in the same volume of Strange New Worlds yeah. in number seven. Yep. And then I met you at a con like the next year or so. Yep. It all kinds of overlaps. You know, you're a fan. There's conventions. You're writing the stories. Then we get into the Strange New Worlds. But I'm kind of interested both in... When did you start going to cons and how much was that tied in with the fan fiction? I mean, for me, I started going to the cons after I got published. And so then I was going as a writer guest. Um, I didn't go to a lot of cons before uh, here in Minnesota for various reasons. Um, did did that all kind of develop together for you or were, were you going to cons when you were younger? You, you'd have a lot more opportunities to go to cons out on the East Coast than I do here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so in the and now this is the early 90s, right? So this is back when Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager were like right on top of each other, along with Generations and First Contact. So like Star Trek was, I mean, I, are we allowed to swear on this show? <laughs> we well, we call ourselves more or less family friendly. So if you go too far, I'll bleep you. Okay. Well then I'll, I'll say you know in the early 90s. Star Trek was the stuff. Okay, so so <laughs> whatever, however you want to rephrase that, right? So Star Trek was was it. Like Star Trek was so big because that, you had Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, two movies, tons of tie-in novels. There's just so much going on. And at the time, I think Creation was the company that was like in charge of the Star Trek conventions. And it seemed like they were doing a convention like every weekend. Like no matter where you were in the country, there was a Star Trek convention near you. Mm-hmm. And uh, being in the DC metro area, like we have like eight or nine venues around here that could host a Star Trek convention, like not just shore leave, but uh, there's uh, places in Richmond and Fredericksburg and Baltimore and DC and uh, other areas around here. So like me and my friends, of course, by that time we were, we were kind of like done with Dungeons and Dragons and done with most of the other RPGs. And we were all huge Star Trek fans and we were playing Star Trek RPGs, whether it was the fast version or the last unicorn games version or make or doing our own homebrew because we, you know we like to role play for the drama and the and the role playing and we didn't really like all the the hardcore mechanical stuff so we were doing a lot of star trek role playing and tied into that star trek role playing we were also we were all writers right so we were all writing fanfic about our characters like i was saying before we were like writing these short stories about our characters and that was informing the role playing and informing the game and making it a whole like rich you know universe uh, so we went to a lot of conventions just as fans uh, for several years. I mean, I remember driving. Uh, there was a couple conventions in Philadelphia that we made the road trip for. We were like, we're going to we're going to do this thing. We're going to go to Philadelphia for this for the Star Trek convention, because at that point, uh, because so many of the actors 
were doing the conventions, like if, you, if there was a particular actor you wanted to see, you kind of like had to plan around that. It's like, oh, shoot, Patrick Stewart's going to be in D.C. We're going to go see Patrick Stewart in D.C. Um, or, uh, or, you know, William Shatner's going to be in Richmond next month. We're going to figure out a way to go see William Shatner or George Takai or like whoever. Right. And in fact, there was one year where they did. Um, uh, it must have been somewhere in Pennsylvania. They did a like the doctor's convention and it was uh, it was uh, D. Kelly and Gates and um, um, uh, Alex Siddig and um, uh, Picardo. Right. There, it was like the doctors convention, and wow. all the doctor actors were there. It was like, whoa, we get to see all the doctors at the same convention. And so we would go, you know, make it a road trip for Saturday. Like, we didn't stay overnight like we did at Shore Leave later in life. But, uh, yeah, we went to a, a ton of conventions. And um, I think the highlight for us as a group, like, there was one convention that we were all able to go to, the five of us in the game group. And um, we were all super anxious to get uniforms right we all wanted to go we wanted to be able to sit around the table playing our star trek game and all be in uniform but like that was our dream goal is like we're all going to be in uniform playing the game together and so we went to the convention and we we made sure to go on a sunday right because we knew we we, we thought because you know we're all in our 20s so what do we know we're all a bunch of snot nosed kids we don't have any idea <laughs> uh, but we all we went on a sunday because we thought, you know, maybe if we go on a Sunday, the dealers aren't going to want to pack all their stuff up. Maybe they'll make us a deal, right? And, and, and like give us a bargain so that they don't have to pack up so much stuff on their truck and go back home. So we we went to the convention on Sunday. We did all the panels. We we sat in on all the guests and stuff. And we kind of like wandered around the, the the dealer room a few times trying to scope out like who had the right uniforms and the right designs. Because there was like a lot of different costumes back then, like like a lot of people making costumes, and some of them weren't really very high quality, <laughs> but some of them were pretty good. And so we found this one dealer, and he had really good uniforms, and he had all the right department colors that we wanted for our characters. And like the convention was going to end at five, and we went in there like at four thirty, and we were like, so you know, we really all want to buy uniforms, and there's five of us. Can you work us a deal? Because like they were, he was charging like I don't know, like sixty bucks a uniform or something, which of course at the time was a lot of money for us. Yeah. And, and I think we managed to talk him down to forty bucks a uniform, and and we all walked out of there with our uniforms. And the very <laughs> next, the very next night, Monday night was our game night, and uh, we we sat down and we were all in our uniforms with our com badges and our rank pips, and we were like, <laughs> we, were, we were we were the stuff that night. And uh, we were feeling it and we just had a great time because uh, that was, it was like a, that shared experience. Right. We went to the convention together as a group. We bought our uniforms together as a group and now we're playing together. And, and that was just a cool experience. Um, this is a very long winded uh, story. But uh, uh, once we got into that uh, anthology, Scott, yeah. you are you are right in that it was a very abrupt 180 from from going to a convention as a fan and just like wandering around, doing your thing, going to the dealer room, doing the panels, whatever, and then being like, oh, wait a minute, I'm a guest. What is this? This is weird. Because <laughs> like before, when I would go to the conventions as a as a as a fan, it's like, oh, there's the authors selling their books. I'm just going to walk right by them because I want to go see the talent. Right. I want to <laughs> go see the actors. And of course, that didn't change. Right. Because now here we are, the, the writers. And we're sitting at our tables waiting for someone to come up and sign their book. And they're like, oh, no, we're going to go see the talent. We're going to go see, uh, you know, Gates McFadden or, uh, or uh, you know, William Shatner or whatever the guest was at the time. 
Yeah, it was just a weird experience, but it was really different to be on the other side of the table and to experience the con from the from the opposite side of you. Um, so so yeah, I was a, I was a longtime con goer as a fan before I became, you know, before I leveled up to professional. I don't know what you call it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that surely um, that was what 2004, I think 2003, 2004, something like that. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was amazing to meet you and all the other writers. I mean, what what was really crazy uh, for me because uh, I, I remember I worked at a bookstore for years, and I remember shelving books by Bob Greenberger and Michael Jan Friedman, and yeah. uh, and then to actually and Peter David, and then to meet them in person, I was like, what? It was like that moment that moment of disconnect where like it's a name on a book. And then it's a person in front of you, right? It is, there's that, that kind of weird switch of like, oh, you're not just a a nebulous thing, <laughs> a nebulous name that writes books and puts your name on the book. You're actually a person that I can talk to and interact with. And uh, I want to make sure I mention Howie and Michael and Bob and Peter. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so it was just a totally crazy experience just to meet people for the first time and realize like you know i mean how do you tell them like oh gosh i i shelved your books when i was a kid <laughs> books to people because i like them so much right like i'm sure they appreciated it or at least their pocketbook did for a while <laughs> um but yeah that short that surely was crazy I, I had no idea what to expect and uh, it was a lot of fun it, it was it was i mean looking back it was amazing that um the folks from new york were able to drive down to uh to maryland Right. It was, it was uh, uh, Marco and um, not I don't remember if Ed Schlesinger made it, but I know that uh, uh, Alyssa Kaysen came down a couple times and Marco yeah. and he, keep the keep the Canada. Um, it was just amazing yeah. to uh, to meet the people that had had written so many of these books. Right. Uh, and then also just to meet all you guys, because I think at the time we had a uh, I don't I don't remember if you were in the in the Yahoo group that I started. I started the Strange New Worlds. Uh, Yahoo yeah. group uh, for anybody who wanted to to write for the things I was just like hey we should all just get together and like help each other write better stories and talk about all the little tips and tricks that Dean uh, Wesley Smith the the editor Dean Wesley Smith every now and then on his uh, website or on the chat windows or something he would post like like here's the stories I like to see and here's here's things that you should think about when you're writing your stories this kind of stuff and we would like dissect every sentence that he wrote trying to figure out like what is he asking for what does he want and then we started to try to tailor our stories around what he was saying and um you know in retrospect i i didn't appreciate um how good it is to have the ear of the editor right to be able to pick the editor's brain yeah. and kind of find out what they like like, like that's really important if you're if you're hunting to to get a uh, a story in a in a publication it's like if you know the editor and you can figure out what their preferences are, then you've got a little bit of a, a head start because that means you can kind of, you know, work toward that a little bit. Um, but no, that was that was a great group, and uh, it was just neat to meet everybody in that anthology. And like Strange New World Seven is always going to have a special place in my heart because it was the first my first professional publication, but also because I got to meet so many great people that I'm still friends with today. Yeah, well, and we broke in in seven. But yeah. had you been contributing all along from um, the start, of, or when did you start sending? No. In? Um, so my friend Kevin Summers got a story into Strange New Worlds Five, and that was really the first time I had actually heard of the contest because I think I wasn't reading uh, a lot of the books at the time. 
and and he got in into five and i was like there's a star trek short story contest what is this and it's like how is how is this been going for five years about it until now right and so by the time i heard about it the 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 submission period for six had already closed no wait no that's not right the submission period for six was still open so i i had time to write two really horrible stories and submit them to six and they both got rejected and uh, i you know it's very clear that they were horrible stories because <laughs> they were both like right at 7500 words and like they weren't complete right i was like i was like i'm writing a star trek story i wrote two star trek stories i submitted them um, and but then I started to talk to other writers online. And it was like, oh, OK, I need to you know, rethink this a little bit. And then I submitted three more for seven and got one into seven. So, I, you know, over those over that period of time, I got a little smarter. But I think uh, five was where I really kind of heard about it because Kevin got his his story into five. And then um, six was the first one I submitted to and missed the boat on that and then started getting into it from there. I mean, at the time, I was also starting to submit stories to, you know, Analog and Asimov and fantasy and science fiction. Um, I probably had no business doing so because my <laughs> fiction was pretty terrible. But uh, I mean, when you're just starting out, you got to start somewhere and, and you got to be willing to just start getting those stories out and uh, getting into the routine of it. I had a professional sale to a literary magazine in 1987. Mm -hmm. And so... When I got into Strange New Worlds, I wasn't eligible to try for a, a Wardy. Dayton Ward was first published in Strange New Worlds right away in volume one, and he got published in two, and he got published in three, and yeah. the rules of the contest were if you had three professional sales, you were done. So yeah. uh, because he was the first one to, to uh, achieve that, then after that, if you had your three sales to Strange New Worlds, you got a Wardy. So you were able to get a Wardy. You were in three times. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have the chance. Not uh -huh. that I would have necessarily gotten one if I had been still eligible to submit, because you just never know when you're going to hit something on the mark and, and right. get in there. And this is kind of funny. This is how much I love Star Trek. Um, once I got my my stories into seven and nine, I was also submitting stories to Writers of the Future, and um, which which was another anthology, right, where for semi-professionals, and it also had the it also had the idea where once you've got three professional sales, you you can't contribute anymore, you're you're out of it, right? And I I made the contest somewhere along the way. I don't know if I got hooked into the idea of getting a Wardy, or if I just love Star Trek that much more. I, I got it into my head that like I don't want to submit to Writers of the Future anymore. <laughs> until I get my third sale with Strange New Worlds. Nice. And so I think I wrote six or seven stories for ten. And of course one of them got in. But like I remember I remember consciously not submitting to Writers of the Future that year <laughs> so that I could try to get the Wardy. And like looking back, I was like, was that the best idea? Like was that the right move? Because like I know Writers <laughs> of the Future is a pretty, you know, prestigious um, you know, deal if you can get in. Yeah, and and I I intentionally blocked myself from ever being able to do that because I got the free sales in Star Trek, um, but you know I don't have any regrets really because like, but I, just, I remember now that we've been talking about it, I was like I remember making that conscious choice of like no I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pursue Writers of the Future I want to get I want to get my third Star Trek, uh, story in so um, just yeah. you know, as an aside. So then after Strange New Worlds, then eventually you got called up to the show. I'm assuming it was did Marco was he the one who asked you to pitch? um indirectly like so so you know and and i admit i was a 
I was a, a, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed writer at Strange New Worlds. When we went to that convention in 2004, right? Like I was like stars and star, you know, starry-eyed. Yeah. New World, and, and like I'll be honest, like I, I guess I can send, I can make this an apology to Marco because like I was one of those horrible, horrible writers that was like, you know, Marco's the stuff. He's got the, he's got the, he's got the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like latch onto him. And see if I can soak up as much information as I can from him, so that I can start pitching to him, right? And I, I feel terrible because I, I think I, I think I was like lagging behind him throughout that whole convention. Like, <laughs> I don't think I was badgering him about work, but I remember like just being all over the place, like trying to just absorb as much as I could and asking a lot of questions and like, because because like at the time, right, he was in charge of the the PowerPoint presentation every Friday night, they would do that whole presentation of like what's coming next for Star Trek and yeah. all these new, all these novel opportunities and all these novel series that they were doing. And I was like, Oh, is there an opportunity to pitch for that? Is there an opportunity to pitch for that? How about that? Is it, <laughs> are you taking pitches for this and this? And it's like, so I, I think I wore him down because like <laughs> right around the time strange new worlds 10 came out, he was doing a bunch of anthologies and I missed the boat on getting invited to a bunch of them. I know you got into quite a, quite a couple of them, I think. Um, but then he was doing um, the the Mirror Universe anthology for for Shards and Shards and Shadows that tied into the two uh, Mirror Universe books, and um, he emailed me one day and he said, "Hey, I've got a uh, an opportunity for a sh for a novella in this anthology about a Mirror Universe Keiko. Do you would this be something that would be interesting to you?" And of course, I was like, "You could have asked me." anything <laughs> you know, it could have been like mirror universe mourn or something and i would have jumped at it uh, so i was like yes of course i'll work on it and so that so he, he yeah he called me up but it's only because i had been badgering him for years about pitching on literally everything he was working on and uh, of course at the time you know at the time simon and schuster was still doing two mass markets a, a month right because they hadn't quite died down yet so they were doing two mass markets a month which i think we we collectively thought okay they're going to do a well-known a well-known author every month because they got to make the sales right they got to get they got to keep the revenue going but there was also an opportunity for newer writers to kind of have a shot at writing a novel too because they figured that the 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 name authors can kind of like offset the new writers lower sales figures right so um, unfortunately right about the time i was starting to get him narrowed down on a couple of ideas for novels they cut they cut the novel line to one a month and of course, when you cut to one a month, you got to go with the with the with the marquee players, right? Because there's yep. just you need to make the money. And um, so I, I got that anthology into that anthology, which was a great experience. It was really fun working with uh, Marco. Um, and then it pretty much dried up at that point because Marco left Simon Schuster, and I think Margaret at one point left, and there was another editor who left, and I didn't know Ed um, all that well. And so like like all that all that. Um, relationship building right kind of went away because <laughs> it's like oh there's there's no one else i know there anymore and there's there's no more opportunity so okay <laughs> yep you, you're, you're not like you know my story like you've lived my story <laughs> yes well i lived it way back after my uh pro sale that i had in 1987 yeah. uh they did this annual writing contest thing but they published fiction throughout the year so i thought well now that i know the people i might be able to sell some more stories to them uh, playing with some of the same characters that were in my contest winning story. Mm -hmm. And I think it was within about six months 
of the sale that there was a big shakeup at the magazine and everyone I knew there was let go or left. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's painful. Yeah, yeah it, it was. It was painful. Yeah, because uh, I remember, uh, I mean, for a moment there, because um, I had gone to so many conventions with like, you know, you and Dayton and Keith and all, all the other writers. Um, I remember kind of like getting into this mindset of like, there's a there's a possible not career, but like there's 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 depth of potential in like media tie in stuff. Uh, and what I didn't appreciate at the time is that there's so many media tie in writers and we're all chasing the same, you know, limited pool of things, especially with Star Trek. Right. Because like Star Trek, yeah. if, if they if they cut down to 12 mass markets a, a year, plus a couple of anthologies, you know, you've got 14 spots. And you've got a hundred writers competing for those fourteen. I mean, not competing, but like we're all yeah. we're all gunning for those fourteen spots. And uh, I, of course, I didn't appreciate that at the time. But uh, you know, you know, you, you look back and you're like, oh yeah, that's why that was the way it was. <laughs> uh, but then there was like a, I had some soul searching. I was like, oh shoot, I can't make a career out of writing Star Trek novels. Now what? And then I, then that's when I started working on you know my own fiction and and other things. And of course, I, I was starting to get into the uh, the role-playing game industry right about that point too, um, in the early two thousands. Um, so, so yeah, it was just like, you know, I don't want to say it was a good thing that, that Star Trek happened the way it did with, uh, the changing of the guard as it were, but, uh, cause I still would have loved to have written some of those Star Trek novels I was pitching. <laughs> it would have been a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, you know, got to it in a different way, I guess. After your Star Trek books, you've been doing a lot of other writing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your own book series and sort of getting into self-publishing? Oh yes, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, boy, we we could talk all night about self-publishing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it ties actually, you know, it ties into uh, it ties into shore leave in a way, because like that first shore leave I went to, um, I also made sure to make an, to take the time to attend um, uh, AC Crispin's uh, writing workshops, mm-hmm. right? Because at the time she was so generous with her time that she was doing writing workshops, and of course this was the early 2000s, and it, this was right before self-publishing really kicked off before the Kindle came out. And and so like back then, like the way to do it was you wrote short stories, you submitted your short stories to markets, you got those published, and then you started doing novels. And to do a novel, you had to write your novel and then do cover letters and start submitting to agents. I mean, that was the way you did it, right? That was the, that was the path. And, uh, and that's what ha- she was hammering home pretty hard for a while there. And, and so like, that was my mindset is like, okay, I've got to write short stories and then I've got to do novels and I got to do my, make my pitches or not my pitches, but the cover letters and the sample chapters, you know, had to be absolutely spot on perfect and, you know, do the, do that whole, um, um, uh, roller, roller coaster, uh, you know, merry-go-round, right. The, the, the query go around. And I did that for a few years and I think I burned myself out. Cause like, man, this is so much work for like, just nothing but a pile of rejections. And it's like, it's, it's not that, you know, I mean, maybe the stuff sucked and that's, that's okay. I, I can admit that if I'm a writer and I'm not writing good stuff, but it's like, you have to hit the right editor at the right time of day yeah. and hope that they're reading it like after lunch or, or, you know, they're not distracted or, you know, maybe they had a bad day at home and they're just taking it out on the writers or, uh, you know, they were stuck in traffic or something and they just want to get through their queue before the holidays. You know, what, what you just don't know what the editors are thinking when they're rejecting stuff or accepting stuff. And, um, Somewhere around there when I was like, I'm kind of, I don't know if I want to do writing anymore because it's like, uh, this is just, it was so much work to do all that um, querying and prepping and planning and like researching editors and agents and, 
trying to read online about what are reputable agents and what are the not reputable ones and all the horror stories that were out there. Um, and then the Kindle came out and Amazon opened up that self-publishing program and it's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean I can write something and push a few buttons and I have access to a global audience in the matter of a few minutes. I mean, like there was a, there was a point somewhere in there, like my professional career, like like my, my day job kept going. And, and I, I somewhere along the way, I made the switch of like, I don't want to write full time as a profession. I want to do my day job and do well at that, but have writing as not so much a side gig, but something that I love to do. And I want to share my stories with people, right? And maybe get paid along the way. And I think self-publishing really made that happen because it's like, I don't have, like, I can make it whatever I want it to be. And, you know, my, one of my personality traits is I'm a builder, right? I love Legos. I love magnet tiles. I love to make things with things. And like, I, I've been a lifelong Lego builder. And so like to get into the weeds of a manuscript, it's like, okay, I can write the manuscript. I can edit it. I can send it to somebody to proofread it because I don't trust myself. And I, I, you know, respect my editors and proofreader friends and they do their job really, really well, which is why I'm okay to like, like, you know, um, uh, subcontract that work and then you know hire somebody to do the cover and hire somebody to do the layout because I can't do it myself um, but once I realized that I could get into like the whole project management of my book and make my book to be exactly what I want it to be and then publish it that was I mean I, I want to say it's a rush but it, it's like the rush of creation right because you're making this cool thing and you know it's out on the market exactly the way you wanted it to be and you didn't have to go through a profit and loss conversation with the bean counters <laughs> you didn't have to go through an editorial board cycle to like talk about whether the cover was really marketable or appropriate or whatever you could just like i'm going to make an artisanal book like like going with the the current trend of like handcrafted artisanal fiction or whatever and i'm yeah. going to make this book whatever i want it to be and then i'm going to publish it so um i for a while there i i dithered on a fantasy series and then i also had an urban fantasy series that i wanted to write Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the timing. Um, my wife got pregnant, and then I took five, I got I managed to get five weeks off of work through the F Family Medical Leave Act. Right, I was like, I'm taking a lot of time off so I can be with my family <laughs> and help out and just you know do the thing. But so like in the chunks of time in between, where like, where like I was taking care of her and taking care of the baby, and I had all this free time because I wasn't working because I, I had the the incredible luxury of being able to take five weeks off, which was yeah. you know, unheard of for, for guys, especially in America. We don't have any paternity leave, right? Unless you're really lucky with a good company or something. And so I, I took those those manuscripts of the of the weird Western novellas and I, I put those together and, and published them like a month apart. And that was really, really fun to like be able to do it and get them out on the, out onto um, Amazon and self-publish them. And I was like, oh, you know, I just did it on my own. Like, I didn't need somebody else to do it. I didn't have to wait a year. I didn't have yeah. to. I didn't have to query them. I didn't have to wait a year for them to come out. You know, from between acceptance to publication, it was just like, you know, I wrote them. I wrote them over the course of like eight eight weeks. I went and got them pr proofread, and then I um, laid them out and uh, got them published. And um, I, you know, I haven't done much of much self publishing lately lately because I've been working so much on the on the Star Trek game. Um, but just like, just like to know that the capability is there, like if I'm a fast writer, I'm a slow writer, like it's entirely in my hands of how much output I can do. And I just love the idea of self-publishing. Yeah. And I think, um, like, like now is the best time ever to be a writer, especially if you want to just like write your stuff and get it out to a global audience. And I, of course, you know, 
you got to do the marketing and the other stuff if you want to make money at it. But like if your passion is writing and telling stories and getting them out to people so that they can enjoy them, I, I mean, self-publishing like this is like the the dream. Uh, like this is like Gutenberg on steroids, yeah. right? It, <laughs> especially now. I mean, we're we're what like uh, 10 to 12 years into since Kindle came out and like and self-publishing has really gone uphill or I mean gone upstream to the point now where you've got a whole cottage industry of cover designers, editors, proofreaders, layout people who are really, really good at what they do. And like, sure, you know, if you're a writer and you want to self-publish, you could teach yourself all that stuff and you could learn in design and you can learn graphic design. But like, it's like your time, like how do you want to allocate your time, right? Yeah. Do you want to mostly focus on the writing or do you want to do the whole thing? And like, I'm perfectly content to, to, to you know, farm out the work to people that I trust. And, uh, but, but I mean, the capability is there, but yeah, it's just amazing to see how professional some of these self-published books are to the point where like, like you, you look at them on, look at them on the shelf and you can't distinguish them from a New York house to no. a, to a self-published house. And it's like, you know, it, it makes me remember that like, if you ask the average person, what publishing house published the last book you read, they're, they're not going to know the difference between Knopf or, uh, you know, Random House or whatever. Like, yeah. I mean, you might look at the colophon and the logo on the spine, but it may not register with them that it's something different, right? I mean, for the most part, who you're being published by, the reader doesn't really care. Um, I mean, I'm sure some writers do care because, like, there's a prestige thing, I'm sure, in New York, like what what house you're yeah. getting published by. But because the, because the self-publishing stuff now is so professional looking, you, you can't tell. Like, I mean, um, like the covers of my urban fantasy books, I would put those up against any um, I mean, not not to be, you know, pat myself on the back, but the cover artist I hired did a really good job. Yeah, like I, put, I could put that up against some of the stuff that's on the shelf now coming out of the regular houses. And like, I don't think people would really notice that mine was self-published unless no. they really looked hard at it. Like if you know what you're looking for, you can see the Amazon books, the way they're published. And you can look in the back and, and find the back page that shows the 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 way their stuff is laid out. But I mean, yeah. if you're not really looking that hard, you can't tell. And, uh, you know, now Amazon's doing hardcovers which is like, ooh, I want to get into that at some point, but uh, um, not so much for the price point, but just because it gives readers another option and, and makes yeah. that ebook price more attractive, right? Because that's where you can <laughs> make some make some money if you really know what you're doing, but I, I'm not there yet. But uh, it's funny, I, I was talking to somebody at uh, the last Shirley we were at in person. It, it might have been, um, uh, I can't remember her name, Danielle McPhail hyphen something. something. something yeah. Like I, gosh, I feel so bad. I can't remember her name. But uh, I was sitting next to her at a table during the signing. And she was like, you know, how many books have you self-published? And I was like, well, you know, seven. And I've got more I'm working on. And she said, you should be going to like local craft fairs and local craft things at your in your neighborhood and, you know, putting up a table with a banner and stuff and, and see if you can sell some books that way. You know, just, just as another way to, you know, generate some income yeah. into get them out there. And I was like, you know, I haven't really thought about it, but she said, you know, as you, as you self-publish more stuff and you get more books, especially because you're writing in different genres, you can have this whole little, like little local cottage thing going on where, you know, local, local writers, um, like, especially, uh, um, little bookstores, if they, sometimes they like to do author signings, of course, this is pre COVID, you know, yeah. I, I don't think anybody's doing them now because <laughs> it's not safe, but, uh, I, I've been thinking about that, but uh, just haven't had time to uh, to really dig into it. But that's just one of the things that self-publishing opens up now is you can literally write, you know, whatever you want. And then you can you can set yourself up a little booth or a little table somewhere 
and people will come up to it and be like, oh, what are you what are you writing? And they can pick up your book and look at it and you can actually hand sell books to people again. Right. Like when was the last time you could do that? And I mean, that harkens back to my old days as a as a bookstore manager is like that. Yeah. That's how you get people to buy books is you talk about it. And you you find the book they're looking for and you actually put it in their hands. Did you work for Barnes Noble? Because when I worked for Barnes Noble, they were like, and then you put it in their hand. <laughs> I, I actually worked for Walden Books, uh, Walden Books, and then Britannos before uh, before Walden Books uh, caved. Um, and, but no, that was that was what, that's what my manager said. She said, if a, if somebody comes up to you and asks you for a specific book, you walk them to the shelf, you take that book off the shelf. You tell them how much you love the book and then you offer it to them. You can't actually put it in their hands, but you offer it to them because nine times out of 10, when you offer something to somebody, they're going to take it. And then once they have it in their hands, they have to make the conscious choice to put it back on the shelf. <laughs> and, and like, I don't know, eight times out of 10, they wouldn't do it. A, because I found what exactly what they were looking for. And I gave them the opportunity to put it in their hands. And then, you know, once you got it, then you're done, <laughs> right? Then you go make the sale and you're, you're off and running. So, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think hand selling is a lost start. And if, you know, whoever can figure out how to do the equivalent of hand selling with eBooks, I think they would make a, a really fine, uh, fine income, <laughs> income stream, but I certainly haven't figured out the secret sauce yet. And I think, I, I know a lot of writers haven't yet because marketing is, is a, a strange and mysterious thing that a lot of us haven't figured out yet and other than other than it being a money pit for uh uh amazon advertising and facebook advertising i, I don't oh. think uh, i just i can't fathom it because like I, i'm on i i passively look at a couple of uh writer groups and um and a couple of these like some of the really well-known indie authors are spending like five figures a month on advertising and I, I just like it boggles my mind. Like you're spending fifty thousand dollars a month just on advertising. I mean, sure, you're making a lot of money off sales, but like, but like, where's the where's the tipping point where you're like, why am I spending so much money <laughs> just wow. throwing it away on advertisements to make you know to make sixty thousand dollars a month or something? It's like, is that is that a good return on your investment? I don't know. I mean, I, I think everybody has to make their own choices, but. Uh, uh, it's mind-boggling how much money Facebook and a Amazon are making off of author <laughs> advertising, <laughs> which I'm sure they're happy about, right? Yeah, yeah, that's wild. I feel like we've been leading up to the big part of our lives right now. Uh, <laughs> I think we have to talk Star Trek Adventures. Uh, do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> are you tired about? Uh, it's been such a. It's been all such your. Uh, it's been such a great hour i mean hour plus here but yeah no that's absolutely i mean you're right scott and ella this everything that we've been talking about right science fiction and fantasy and writing and um role-playing games i mean it all it all comes to it all comes to star trek adventures i mean even shore leave right and i yeah. joked about a couple i mean I guess it's been a couple of years now right because we haven't been to shore leave in person for two years um, I remember I, I put together a presentation for the last uh, shore leave we went to. I guess it was what 2019, right? And I, I, I jokingly called Strange, uh, Star Trek Adventures. It, it's kind of the it's kind of the shore leave RPG in a way, because because <laughs> um, shore leave gave me the opportunity to make connections with so many of you, like you and Dayton and uh, and Kelly and Derek and uh, and and Keith to Canada and and other people. Um, 
and like I was able to take those friendships and those professional connections and and actually do something with it, like translate it and give you all an opportunity to to come with me on this. And um, yeah, I think I think Star Trek Adventures was like the first time in my professional life, either my like my day job life or just my professional writing life, where like everything aligned. Like mm-hmm. like most of the time, a job opportunity would come along and be like I, I would like not have I would not quite have the right skill set. Or I or I would be over over skilled for it. So it was either like not the right position at the right time or not quite the right opportunity at the right time. Like I was always just kind of like just missing the boat on mm-hmm. on things. Like I remember um, when I was working on the Lord of the Rings RPG for Decipher. Decipher also had the Star Trek RPG license, and I was I got into the Lord of the Rings game first, and I was working on that for about a year and a half. And I was starting to make inroads on and starting to get to know the people who were doing the Star Trek game. And just as I was starting to get into like, what am I going to work on on Star Trek? Decipher imploded and they lost both licenses. <laughs> and so I, I just missed working on that Star Trek game. And it was really heartbreaking because that was the last licensee to have Star Trek for like 14 years. Like nobody else picked up the license as far as I can recall. Um, or at least, or maybe they did and they just didn't do anything with it. Um, and then in 2016, um, I have a, I had a good friend, uh, Jason Dural. He and I worked together on the Lord of the Rings RPG, and he continued to have a career in RPG writing, like because he loves RPGs of all kinds and worked on all kinds of stuff. And I was just kind of like a dabbler. Like I, I really like Star Trek. I like Star Wars. I like Lord of the Rings. And there was a couple other RPGs I kind of liked and I would I would write for. But like I wasn't passionate enough about the overall hobby to, to work on everything. Right. I was a little bit more yeah. picky about what I wanted to work on. And one day he emailed me and he said, hey. Uh, this company, Modifius, in in London, England, uh, just picked up a really cool license. I can't tell you about it because you're not under NDA yet, but you need to put your resume together and send it to the president of the company and because uh, um, and, and, I think you're going to be interested. So good luck and live long and prosper. And that's all he said, <laughs> his, you know, which kind of gave me the clue, like, oh, OK, I think I know what they're doing. And so I sent my stuff in and uh, Chris, uh, Chris Birch, the president of Modifius, got hold of me. And he was like, yeah, I'd like to get you involved in the game some or, you know, involved in the writing of the core book somehow. And uh, and pretty rapidly, I said, oh, by the way, Chris, um, I happen to know Dayton Ward, uh, you know, New York Times bestselling author of Star Trek novels. And, oh, hey, I happen to know Scott Pearson, who's doing copy editing for all the Star Trek novels. Do you want me to get them involved? And he was like, uh, yes. <laughs> and so I made sure to get you and Dayton because I think the two of you were the yep. ones I, I knew the best, I, I think, because I hung out with you guys more often at Shirley than anybody else, other than the little clique of um, uh, Northern Virginia writers, because we all got into seven at the same time. Yep. Uh, there was like there were seven of us in the Northern Virginia area alone, which was shocking because we were like, oh, this is really cool. Um, but uh, you and Dayton were always at the top of my list. And uh, I and I wanted to see if you wanted to get involved. So I, I know that they reached out to you at some point um, early in there, because you guys both got involved in working up the uh, the Tillicall and the Shackleton Expanse and stuff. Like, I don't know that piece of the story that well, so I'm going to need you to fill me in on that, because I, I started working on the core book, um, and then I pretty rapidly got involved in editing and developing the adventure book that came out at the same time mm-hmm. as the core book. But I, I'd love to flip this a little bit and just hear, hear your story about how you and Dayton got involved in uh, in those early early stages of it back in 2016. Well, yeah, we just uh, we heard from uh, from Chris and uh, asked us if we were interested. We both said we were. Uh And, uh, you know, and I said, 
I was definitely interested, you know, not just because it was Star Trek, but because this was something that I had never done before, worked sure. on a on game concepts like this. Uh, so yeah, well, then we just had some, uh, you know, we had like a, a, a big Skype call and, and, uh, had some sort of, um, I can't remember what app they used, but, you know, we had some sort of Google docs type app so we could, uh, uh exchange. Like exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it was wild because we just started inventing stuff and, uh, I mean, it was mostly Dayton. We started developing the storylines that could be used for the living campaign. So then, you know, we, we kind of thought that that was, that we were, we were done, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like we, we helped put together this backstory for the game and then things were off. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that was fun, but you know, I, I guess that's, that's over. And then uh, when I say that it was over, I mean, over as far as me as a writer, Mm -hmm. because I was kept on doing the Canon review stuff, I think even before, you came in, but then, or, or was I? Now maybe I'm mixing up the timeline. Um, I can't yeah, remember. I, I'm not sure because I know I got involved in like May of 2016, and then um, and I thought you guys got into it like right around the same, maybe, maybe in June or July. Um, and then, like like I said, I, I delivered my chapters for the core book, and then um, I, I did the the freelance thing of like, oh, by the way, I can edit, I can proofread. Where else do you need help? And at the time, I think Sam uh, Sam Webb had just gotten hired and he was compl- not to say he was overwhelmed, but he had so much work to do because they knew they wanted to get that book out for Gen Con the following year. And there was just a huge amount of stuff that had to be done to make that happen. Um, and uh, so he was like, yeah, any work I can push off on, on you is going to be less work I have to deal with. And like somewhere along the way, we got you involved in canon editing. Yeah. In, in addition to doing the living campaign. Um, concepting with Dayton. Uh, so I'm not yeah. exactly sure when I reached out to you and said, hey, I got stuff that I need you to start reviewing for Canon stuff in addition to what you're already doing for the living campaign. Um, and then it smoothed out over time, you know, once we got on a, a slightly quasi more predictable release schedule. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I told you this over email and like, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you and Dayton were along for the ride, at least in the early stages, because like I didn't know any of these people from Modiphius and I, you know, I, I've come to you know know them all very well by this point because we're five years into it. But like to be able to work on this kind of thing with friends, you know, and and trust, it just made it that much better. Yeah. Right. Because like it's one thing to do it and like, OK, I'm the new guy and I don't know anybody. I'm going to make the best of it. But like to be able to bring friends along and to work on it together in kind of a way was really, really rewarding and, and gave me a lot more confidence going into it. And um, I know. I don't know if I told you this, but like I, I'm confident that having you and Dayton on board like gave Modiphius a little more comfort level slash cachet with CBS and John Van Sitters and Marion yeah. uh, Cordry and stuff because they knew, OK, they've got these people on board who know what they're doing. And now we kind of have a sense of like Modiphius knows what they're doing. And we've continued to build a great relationship with them over the years. Uh, just because, uh, you know, I, I know my stuff and I'm, I've got you and you got I got you backing me up and Dayton and everybody else. So, like, I've got a great relationship with them now, which I'm really proud of. Um, but all of it was because I was able to get you guys and you were willing to do it, which was really a big piece. It was like, how am I going <laughs> to sell this to you guys? Um, so that helped. Ever since I watched Ted Lasso. I like to just say Star Trek is life. 
Star Trek is life. Yeah. You know, it's like you don't have to say much more to me other than we got this Star Trek thing we're doing. It's yeah. like, OK, count me in. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, Star Trek is life. Star Trek, it truly is life. And uh, I didn't appreciate it until I started working on this game because uh, right about the time I started working with Modiphius is when I started my Twitter account. And uh, I mean, because I was a writer, right? And you're supposed to have a Twitter account. So, I mean, what was I doing with it? Nothing. But uh, once I got into the game, I was like, oh, shoot, I need to start interacting with fans and other writers and trying to just get this whole thing working. And um and I've met so many great Star Trek fans and friends through Twitter, which is amazing. Because like at first I was like, I really like Facebook, and Facebook was my 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 safe home. But then I branched out to Twitter and like, wow, Twitter's really cool because like it makes the world so small, right? <laughs> to the point where like now I've got like Mike McMahon, Mike McMahon and John Van Sitters and some of the some of the actors and stuff will will like my posts. It's like, ooh, they liked my post. This is awesome. Jonathan Drake's like my post. Holy cow, this is great. This is, this is the stuff. This is amazing. And uh, I mean, of course, it doesn't mean anything uh, to, to to some extent. But like, I'll admit, like, I, I posted something one day and uh, like Nana Visitor liked it. So I screenshot it. Of course I did, right? Like, how would you not want to screenshot something like that? It's like, because you, I mean, whether it's her or her, um, like her social media manager, right? Like whoever runs Nana's account yeah. liked one of my posts. So, you know, I, I call that a, I call that a win, right? Cause uh, I just <laughs> love her. Um, but yeah, boy, I tell you, man, uh, getting into Twitter gave me, a, a, I mean, this is like self-publishing, right? You get that instant conduit to your fans and, and, and social media gave me a connection to the fans in a way that I wasn't expecting, right? Cause like we're working our asses off on this game and like, I don't think, I mean, you, you have an idea because you were, you were an acquiring editor. So you know how much work goes into making a book, not just the manuscript and the editing and the proofreading, but then you get into the, into the art design and the art layout and the, 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 the sausage making that goes into making a book. Like if you're not in the industry, you just don't really appreciate how much stupid yeah. amount of work goes into <laughs> the, the, the proof layout reading and the reviews and the. And and just like staring at a PDF for months, finding all the errors and knowing you're not going to find them all, but you find as many as you can, <laughs> and, and you just stare at the. And so you just do this for months and months and months, and you but you put all this work into it, and then the book finally gets out there. And what I didn't appreciate is like, because we're on social media, um, we have a direct conduit to the fans, so we have this back and forth. We have the ability to do this back and forth interaction where like. They they see that the line manager and the writers and the artists are on social media too, and they can interact with us. And it's not like this. There's this weird, you know, the people making this role playing game are this in their ivory tower and they're untouchable. <laughs> yeah. and you just you, you you never hear from them. Uh, but now you're on social media and like, oh yeah, Jim's on social media all the time, just chatting about the game or just you know screwing around, being goofy or whatever. And and I can reach out to them and touch them and say, oh, hey, I liked your game or I hated your game or, you know, there's a typo on page 30 or whatever yeah. uh, as they do. Um, but that's been I mean, we're going off track a little off track a little bit. But like the the most rewarding thing for me, even beyond making the books and getting them out there, is, is seeing what the fans do with it and being able to to watch their reactions and see their reactions. It, it's so cool because like. And this is just how the Internet, like for all the pros and cons of the Internet, right, it's made the world smaller and more intimate in weird ways. And and the best example I can give you 
<laughs> this is so crazy. Like we, 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 we've done a ton of adventures for this game, right? I mean, we've got like over a hundred adventures in one form or another for this game over five years, which is, I, I think a really kind of cool testament that we have so many things that people can play with, but like you can go onto YouTube or onto Twitch or onto any of these other social media channels that people post their stuff. Right. And I mean, one night, cause you know, working on this game, I'm, I'm up until like, you know, midnight or one in the morning, I'm putting the time in. And, and sometimes I'll be like, okay, I'm done staring at the screen working on this book. I want to just, you know, do something mindless for half an hour before I go to bed, I'll pull up YouTube and I'll just do a search for Star Trek adventures. And I'll just, I'll pick some random um video that somebody's posted because what they tend to do is they like they they record their game sessions right so you got like you know five six seven people around the table playing the game and they might be in germany or finland or africa or or uh you know new zealand or something and like one night I, one of the one of the living campaign adventures i wrote um uh convoy se113 it was it was about um the federation and the klingons escorting a convoy of transports to a deep space relay in the Shackleton Expanse, it's just you know a short adventure just to get things in things going, and there was a group in Germany that like posted their video online, and it was like you know I, I could read I could read Convoy SE one one three in in quotes because that was the only English words in the title. <laughs> Everything else was German that I couldn't I couldn't read because uh, my my German uh, has left me. I, I did uh, three years of German in college, and I can't remember it anymore because I don't speak it because I, I didn't have an opportunity to speak it anyway. Um, so I, I just sat there and watched it for half an hour and I didn't understand a lick of what they were doing or talking about, <laughs> but what I, but what I could see was how much fun they were having playing yeah. the game. Right. And, I, and <laughs> it was like, my heart just got like 10, it was like the Grinch, like my, my heart got <laughs> 10 times bigger in my chest. And I was like, I don't know these people. I can't speak their language. But I can tell that they're having a good time. They're playing the game that I worked on. They're playing the camp. They're playing the actual adventure that I wrote. And so I watched it for like 20 minutes just to get a feel for what they were doing. And I was like, you know what? This is this is almost reward enough. <laughs> but you know, I mean, obviously we want to get paid for our for our time and talent. <laughs> but but like that was a, a level of reward that I didn't expect getting into this. And and that, yeah. that's just where I am now. Is like. Um, like we worked on the Shackleton book, right? And we've been working on that to one degree or another for five years from the very beginning. And I remember earlier this year, um, there was a point where I had gotten all the manuscripts, all the art, all the stuff. And I was literally the only person on the planet who had re who had seen the totality of the book, right? And, and all of its different pieces. And And for a moment there, I was like, wow, this is really cool that this five-year project has come to come to this point and I'm literally the only person in the entire world of 8 billion people who knows <laughs> everything that's in this book. So I, on the one hand, I was like, this is really cool. And then the immediate thought after, after that was, I hope I don't get hit by a bus. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, if I die, no one's going to see this ever. <laughs> so, uh, so once I got that fatalistic thought out of my head, then we started getting into the layout. And then, um, and then I sent it off to the proofreader and then the proofreader saw it all. And then the layout guy got his hands on it and we started laying it out. And then we went through all that stuff. And then finally we got it out. But um, it was I, there was a point there was a point several times earlier this year. And I know I did this on a lot of other videos and interviews where I was like I was literally giddy. Like I was like, we have this whole 300 page book of really cool stuff that we're going to drop on the Star Trek Adventures fans here, you know, coming up later in the year. 
and and you guys are going to love it. And I was like, I just want you to, I wanted to get it into your hands as soon as possible. Like I, I had to stop myself. There was one point um, where I was just sick to death of looking at the PDF, right? Because we were just, we spent months on the PDF trying to get it all laid out correctly. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to release this on like a torrent or something and just, <laughs> just, just take it. I don't want to do it anymore. Just like go take it and have fun and enjoy it. Um, but I I, res I restrained myself <laughs> because uh, that wasn't responsible uh, would, or wouldn't have been responsible. So I, I, I held on and uh, we finished it and, and, you know, finally got it out. But um, I just remember feeling like because because, you know, knowing the fans and, and having interacted with them for five years now, I was like, I know what you guys want and I know what I want as a game master. And it's like, I can't wait for you to finally get this in your hands because it's going to be so cool. And uh, I've been feeling that way with like all the books we've been working on over the last couple of years, the Cleon core book and the Shackleton book, the player's guide, the game master's guide and the stuff I'm working on now that we can't talk about yet. Yeah. Um, that's going to be super cool next year. And even into uh, 2023, it's, it's been a fun ride. And uh, I mean, I'm shocked that we're five years into it and we're still going and uh and you know cbs is still cranking out new series right they've got strange new worlds coming and they've got more prodigy coming and more discovery and and you know even possibly more series beyond that and it's like you know i'm kind of like on the one hand i'm like i'm getting a little tired <laughs> some days i get a little tired and i'm like oh do i want to keep doing this because like you know going back to the writing like i i've pretty much shelved my my fiction writing for the last five years in, in favor of working full bore on Star Trek. And, you know, that's not a bad thing necessarily because I love Star Trek so much. And it goes back to what you were saying about Star Trek being life. Um, but I do know that there, there are, there are, there have been times, especially over the last year where I kind of like look at my shelf of my, my brag shelf and see myself published work. And I'm like, I've still got ideas that I'd like to start working on and, and writing books. And, uh, you know, at, at this point, you know, I just had my 52nd birthday and I know that I'm on the I'm on the on the wrong side of uh, not, not the wrong side, but like I'm 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 probably beyond half my life. Right. And so like the time I have is starting to narrow and it's like, you know, I've got I've got more story ideas in me than I will ever have time to write. Right. So it's like, yeah. where where do I find the the time between Star Trek that I love so much and having such a good time with and getting back to that fiction writing? So I, I've got to work on that balance a little bit um so we'll figure it out here at some point because I, I do want to get back to fiction writing um but for now this has been a great ride on star trek adventures and i'm not i'm not interested in seeing that stop anytime soon and like, i mean right now we're we're in a great place with it and uh, cbs is happy and we're happy and uh we've got at least the next 16 months solidly locked down on what we want to do and we're looking ahead to to more stuff so um yeah. we'll see what happens yeah, we're in a great time for Star Trek, and it seems like a good place to uh, call a wrap on the show here. Yeah, I don't know if there's a whole lot more that we haven't covered. I mean, uh, <laughs> this has been my my professional life in a nutshell. Well, in a in what a uh, hour and a half, I guess. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. this has been wide ranging and and been a lot of fun. So uh, I hope you guys hope you all got something out. But I really appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, finally, this has been great. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Yeah, yeah. great to have you. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, it's not the same as being in person because uh, I don't know when we'll get to Minnesota again. But uh, glad we were there earlier, and glad we got to have lunch, Scott. Yeah. And uh, um, Ella, next time I'm up there, we'll have to all get together and, and do something. Oh, but, definitely. Um, Hopefully, we'll have another shore leave sooner rather than later too. Yeah, crossing hope so. my fingers for that. 
yeah, we'll see what happens next year. But I have a feeling that Omicron or uh, or the next variant is going to put a kibosh on it. But we'll see what happens. You know, fingers crossed that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. Modern medicine keeps cranking out the good uh, the good vaccines. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just got my booster this week. Oh, excellent. I, I'm due next. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm due in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. All right. So uh, thanks so much for staying up late with me, rambling on about Star Trek and everything else. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, yeah, y'all. Thank you. Be yep. well. I'm sure See I'll ya. talk to you real soon. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for more geeky fun. Until then, check out generationsgeek.com or visit us on Kofi. You know, I looked up how to pronounce it. And it's, it's not Kofi. Kofi. No, uh, it's Kofi. It says right on their website. So visit us on Kofi, where I'm posting geeky book reviews from my archives. They're free to read, but there is a tip jar there. I'm just saying. Please subscribe to the show and give us fabulous reviews. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and even Facebook. We might post something every once in a while. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. Come back next time. (laughs) Barely even needed a script. What are we doing? No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny.